Morning, everyone. We're in Galatians chapter 2. We're right in the middle of uh, Galatians chapter 2. It's on page... What page is it on in the Black Bibles around the room? I just forgot it. What is it? 914. Thank you very much. Page 914, grab a black Bible around the room. This is uh, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. This is a region in southern Turkey, present-day southern Turkey. Paul is writing to these churches that have been infiltrated by false teachers. And what these false teachers are teaching is that, yes, believe in Jesus. By faith, he's the way to salvation. But you must work. You must fulfill the law. You must do things in order to earn his acceptance. So, yes, believe in Jesus. But, yes, you got to keep working. And when those two things go together, then you're saved. Paul says, not a chance. That undermines justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And so he is fierce. He's writing with a red-hot pen to these Galatian churches who he loves, but he's saying, you guys, you are, you are being duped here. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. And then he says, not that there is one in chapter 1, and then he continues on. And now he's writing in chapter 2, and just recently he's gone up to Jerusalem to convene with these other apostles, Peter and James and John, these other apostles that are in Jerusalem. Quite a distance he traveled to go and convene with them and to make sure that, that they were not sending these false teachers to these Galatian churches, and that they themselves had not abandoned the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's kind of a snapshot. Now, Paul will take up Galatians chapter 2. I want to just read it, get this percolating in our minds. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The big numbers on the page are the chapters. The little numbers in between the sentences are the verses. You might see a heading that says, Paul opposes Peter. So quite some time has gone by between the paragraph breaks here. And now he takes up again. He says, but when Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, which means rock, when When Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before, certain men came from James, down from Jerusalem, from James. He was eating, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, Peter did, fearing this circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, that's Paul, one of Paul's co-laborers for the gospel, even he was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's the text before us this morning that I'm going to explain. We've prayed quite a few times already this morning. We're going to pray again and continue to ask the Lord to illuminate his word for us. Father, would you speak through me? Would you put my mind at rest? Would you make your word alive to those of us who are interacting with it and it's coming into our ears? Would it not just sit in our heads, but would it come down to our hearts? And would we see ways that it applies to our lives? Would we see application for today, even though we're reading this text from nearly 2,000 years ago? The Bible is living, it is relevant, and it speaks your words to all who would have ears to hear. And that is the irreligious and the religious this morning. Would we all in this room have ears to hear? what your spirit and what your word says to your church. 
In Jesus' name, amen. The gospel has implications for our conduct. Jesus, who is the good news, the word gospel means good news. Jesus, who is the gospel, who is the good news, has authority over our conduct. Over our conduct. The gospel, it has implications for how we live. The gospel is something that we believe, something that we assent to with our minds. And yet, when we believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead, when Jesus really did pay for all of our sins, like Bonnie said, past, present, future, that means if that's actually true, if that's something that we say we believe, if that is historically true as well, then the gospel has implications for how we live. But one distinction that we've been making and that Paul makes in Galatians is that our conduct does not earn our acceptance before God. God accepts us and then we obey. We do not obey so that he will accept us. Meaning our obedience starts to flow freely out of this gratitude that God has come for us and bestowed his love upon us. The gospel has implications for our conduct and Jesus has authority over our conduct. Now, we can see probably some big rocks where big big areas of our life where the gospel should have implications for our conduct. It should uh, teach us not to murder other people. It should teach us not to steal from people. It should teach us to treat one another with respect. But what about the little more granular details of your home and your life and the way that you relate, your patterns of relating to other people? Does the gospel have implications for your snappiness with those around you? When you get hangry, and you bite the head off of the person nearest you at that moment, should the gospel of grace have implications for how you conduct yourself with the people around you? Maybe your heart is closed off. You've just, you've been hurt, you've been wounded, and now you've shut it down and you've you've resolved that I will never again let another person in here. Does the gospel have implications for that space in your life? Does the gospel have implications for, for shady business dealings, shady money spending, shady Netflix account borrowing, shady, right, like I'm hacked into mom and dad's, you know, Comcast account and I'm getting all the chance, like does the gospel actually have implications for that kind of stuff? I would say that it does. I would say that it absolutely does. See, we are not relatively good people who need to make minor course corrections, That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are deeply flawed people who need total realignment. We need overhaul. People need overhaul. This passage in Galatians right here, it reveals the conflict between the gospel and our conduct. And and specifically, Paul is calling out Peter, this rock of the faith. This guy that Jesus set his sights on and this guy that's been walking with him for like 15 years. This guy that saw Jesus' resurrection. This guy that lived with Jesus in the flesh during his three years of ministry. Peter, 15 years in, forgets the gospel. And he draws back from these other Gentile Christians. (laughs) Peter the rock rolled on the gospel. I like that turn of phrase. I was thinking about it this week. I think you should too. Peter the rock, he rolled on the gospel. He forgot it. And if Peter did, here's the implication for us, you guys. So can I. And so can you. Hypocrite. Have you noticed this word used in this passage? Hypocrite. Paul is calling Peter a hypocrite. He's calling the people with him hypocrites. The Jews who are with him hypocrites. His bro, his co-laborer in the gospel, Barnabas, he's calling him a hypocrite as well. Jesus used this word often. 
in his ministry. If you recall his interactions with the religious folk of the day, Jesus used this word hypocrite all of the time because he often had conflict with these religious rulers and then he would just not let it, he, he would not hold it in. He would let it go on them and he would call them hypocrite to their faces. Those he most confronted and labeled with the word were the religious folks. And so he used this word hypocrite to describe those who claimed to know God and claimed to follow God, but their conduct actually told the truth. See, they had righteous doctrine. They had all the belief stuff in a tight little package, but their culture was rotten. Righteous doctrine, rotten culture, rotten way of life in the way that they the way that they strapped burdens on people and the way that they, they, they lorded their authority over people around them. They confessed to know and love God, but their conduct told the truth. Matthew 7, 5. I'm going to give you a couple of instances here just to frame how Jesus spoke to the religious folks of his day. Matthew 7, 5. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You hypocrites, Matthew 15, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They had added something to the law of God, requirements to the law of God. Matthew twenty-two eighteen. but Jesus, aware of their malice, these are the religious folks he's talking about here, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Matthew 23, 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. These are the elite of the elite in the religious community. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Strong words. Yes. Jesus used direct words to tenderize the hearts of the self-righteous. Jesus used these direct words to tenderize the hearts of the self-righteous. And in Galatians, Paul uses the same direct words to describe Peter, this leader of Jesus' band of apostles. And he also uses it to describe Barnabas as well, his co-laborer early on. They took a break from one another, and then he's Barnabas is his co-laborer later on in his missionary journeys as well. Here's a point I don't want you to miss. In the Bible... The word hypocrite is, re- is reserved for those who claim to be God followers. The word hypocrite is most often reserved for the God talkers. It's most often reserved for those who claim to know God and to follow him. And this has a practical implication for us. This means that we are in danger at every moment of also being hypocrites. Where our conduct does not align with what we say we believe. There's a gap between the two. If you think about, if we were to just go take a poll on, on the streets, busy area, and say, hey, hey, what do, you, what do you think about Christians? Those people who have a pejorative or a negative view of Christians and followers of Christ, would pro- if we were to then follow up that question with, why do you, like, what do you think of Christians? Well, I don't really care for them. And the answer is why, and, and then the question is why, their answer is most likely what? Because they're what? We hear it constantly in our culture. Now, there is some good basis for that, and there's some that's just poor. Like, they misunderstand us, they twist the scriptures, their, their judgment isn't really true. And yet, there is a great deal of the world's judgment on the church today as they look in and they say, man, like, 
Why would I want to be a part of those folks? It's a reality of the world that we live in. The world views the church, and probably its number one criticism of the church is that the people of God are hypocritical. Our hypocrisy, where our conduct is not in line with the truth of the gospel, it damages Jesus' reputation, and it damages the reputation of Jesus' blood-bought church, and it is not to be tolerated, as we'll see. Peter here was living out of step with the truth of the gospel, and if Peter, then me. And of Peter than you. And while not while our conduct is not able to save us, the conduct of Christ's followers certainly does matter. So in verses 1 through 10, last week, you can listen to uh, the podcast. By the way, we're on iTunes. If you guys, we, it's <laughs> taken us four years to get on iTunes. We're on, we're on iTunes now. So if you want to download the previous podcast, feel free. The sermon podcast, do that. Um, I explain verses 1 through 10 in much greater detail. Um, so I'm just going to frame it very briefly this morning to kind of catch those of you up um, who weren't with us last week. Paul goes up to Jerusalem. By, it says by Revelation in chapter 2, verse 1. That means that Jesus told him to go. The Holy Spirit told him to go, and Paul went. And it was a great, it was a long journey. It took him probably weeks to actually get to Jerusalem. And he went to Jerusalem to meet with these Jerusalem apostles to find out, like I said earlier, if they had commissioned these false teachers to come down into these Galatian churches and teach Jesus plus keeping the law equals salvation. Paul goes up and he talks to these Jerusalem apostles to see if they had abandoned the actual gospel and he finds out that they have not, that they didn't send these guys down with permission to be sharing and teaching these kinds of things. And so Paul and these Jerusalem apostles unite and the church, the unity of the early church is preserved and by default it ostracizes these false teachers in Galatia. They wanted to make sure these false teachers, they were referred to as Judaizers. They wanted to bring Christians back into observance of the, the, the Mosaic law, the law that was given by Moses. And so their unity, the apostles' unity, ensured that these Judaizers would not gain a foothold in these Galatian churches. So the agreement in Jerusalem solidified the apostles' unity, and therefore it solidified unity between all true followers of Jesus. Here's my first point from our text as we jump into verses 11 and 12 this morning. And then I'll have a second point out of verses 13 and 14 this morning. So just two points this morning, uh, hopefully coming, springing right up out of the text. First point is this. There are no second-class Christians in the kingdom of God. There are no second-class Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, in the kingdom of God. Read with me verse 11. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Like I said earlier, Cephas means stone in Aramaic. And Peter is the Greek word for stone as well. So they're in a multilingual uh, society, multicultural society. They kind of have different names that they go by in different contexts. But here, Paul is confronting Cephas. He's using, his, he's using the Aramaic name Cephas, which is the same name that Jesus would have used for Peter, as well as Peter lived with him for three years during his, uh, during, during his earthly ministry. So Paul is actually referring to Peter here likely as Cephas because this rock, Cephas means rock, the rock of the early church, because yet again he drew back and deserted the truth due to his fear. 
John Stott, a theologian from the UK, he says, the same Peter who denied Jesus for fear of a maidservant right before Jesus was crucified denied him again for fear of the Judaizers. And it's interesting here, the language that Paul uses for draw back, it describes a timid person shrinking back from observation. It describes a timid person shrinking back from observation. What I was thinking about as I was trying to picture this in my mind, have you guys seen or used the gif uh, when you're texting each other where it's, it's Homer Simpson and he like draws back into a shrub and you just see this shrub like cover his face? Have you seen that gif? Any, look it up. It's, it perfectly like now I'm going to see Peter like that as he's drawing back from the Judaizers. He's just like, And the shrub just covers his face. He's timidly drawing back from view here. Let's not be quick, though, to go hard on Pete, on Peter. Why? Because we all do the same thing at times, do we not? Why else do we shrink back and disengage in a conversation when we know we have something of value to contribute to it? I'm not even talking about sharing the gospel. I'm just talking about like differentiating ourselves from a conversation. Something's going on in front of us and we kind of shrink back because we don't want to put ourselves out there. We don't want to risk conflict. How often do we kind of shrink back from view for the same reasons? I think it's often. If I look at my life, it is certainly. In verses 1 through 10, Paul goes up to Peter's home base in Jerusalem. But now in this text, in verse 11, we see that, that, that Peter comes to Paul's home base in Antioch. And Antioch is in modern-day Syria, just north of Jerusalem. It's actually about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, remember the way that people traveled in these days. They traveled by foot, they traveled by animal, or they traveled by ship under power of wind if they were on the coast and they could travel along uh, the coastlines. So this is likely, this 300-mile journey is from here to Seattle in distance. And, and if you're walking 20 miles a day, it's going to take you two weeks to get there. So this is not like hop in the car and do a little quick weekend trip and, and convene, right? This is under great effort, Peter comes and travels north to see Paul at his home base, the home base of Paul and much of Barnabas' missionary, uh, the home base of their missionary endeavors in Antioch, Syria, where they were reaching out and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Antioch is the place where Christians were first called Christians. Before Antioch, they had just been called followers of the capital W Way. They're followers of the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it was here in Antioch that Christians first became called Christians, little Christs, little imitators of the risen Jesus. Additionally, Paul, what he says here is that Peter stood condemned. Why? Because Peter drew back from sharing meals, from sharing a table with non-Jews, with Gentiles, because he feared those of this circumcision party. I talked about this last week. I'm not going to get into it today, but circumcision was a mark of the covenant. It was a physical mark on a man whereby he was set aside physically as one of God's covenant people. And so these Judaizers were infiltrating these churches saying that all of the Gentiles, the non-circumcised, must be circumcised. I know that feels weird for some of you to hear in church right now this morning, but that's uh, its basis is in the Scriptures, and the covenant was given by God, this covenant of circumcision. You can learn more about it if you listen to last week's podcast. So Peter deserted God because he feared certain men. He drew back because he feared, quote, certain men. 
Who are those certain men? Who are those certain women that you find yourself drawing back from in your life? Who is that insanely influential person where you kind of lose yourself when you're in their presence? You second guess speaking up. You second guess speaking out. You don't want to lose their approval. And so you just shift just slightly just to kind of do the dance around whoever they are. Who is that certain man? Who is that certain woman in your life? Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a coworker or an employer or a fellow student. Who is that person that you find yourself fearing and you kind of lose yourself when you're around them? For Jews, table fellowship was more... I asked that question for us to see that we're really not that much different than Peter, that we fear people that we fear the people around us. We don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to be put out. We don't want to be judged. And so we pull back, we draw back from one another. For Jews, table fellowship, it was more than sharing a meal with a friend. Table fellowship in this day and age between Gentiles and Jews, it was a sign of acceptance and it was a sign of approval. So for centuries, uh, Jews and Gentiles, they rejected one another. And I mean that in the strongest of terms. They rejected one another religiously and they rejected one another racially. They absolutely, from Gentile to Jew and Jew to Gentile, they were 100, they, they hated each other based on their racial heritage and based on their religious heritage. And so they separated, so much so that Jews, that, that devout Jews, Samaria was north of Israel, and they would, if they were going somewhere um, on, on a journey and they needed a shortcut through Samaria, they wouldn't do it. They would actually walk around Samaria so as to not become unclean. That's how deep their hatred went. They wouldn't go through their state. Like, that's a, <laughs> that's a pretty high commitment uh, to avoid a person. And so then for, to think about them coming together uh, around an intimate event like sharing a meal and partaking out of the same dish and sharing fellowship and sitting that close face to face in the Mishnah, this, this, um, this rule book of kind of how the Old Testament laws were applied, um, the, the Jews would say that even to go into a Gentile's house would be to make one unclean. So even to be in the presence of Gentiles, Jews would would fear becoming unclean. And if they became ceremonially unclean, then that would take them like a week to go through some some rituals to then cleanse themselves according to the law. So it was a great inconvenience at at a minimum for the Jews to eat with Gentiles. So it's not a petty disagreement about secondary things in life. For Jew to share a table with a non-Jew was to become unclean because the Gentiles were unclean. Now, I want to read um, something to you from Timothy Keller out of this book, uh, Galatians for You. It's just a, it's a really easy to read um, book on what Galatians is all about. The reason that I often, I want to just share this with you as well. The reason that I often read like directly out of books, quotes up here, is because I want you guys to see that I am learning from other people and I want by default for you to also open yourselves to learning from other people, whether it's by reading books or whether it's by podcasting or whatever it might be. I want to expose you to good, trustworthy authors and scholarship, but I, but I also just want you to like go on the hunt for good, faithful, reliable teachers and to posture yourself as a learner. This is what uh, Timothy Keller says here. He says, um, Paul explains the presenting issue simply. Peter had changed his eating habits. He used to eat with the Gentiles, but he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. To a first century Jew... 
far more surprising than Peter stopping eating food with the Gentiles would be the fact that he had started eating with them in the very first place. The Old Testament in instituted the clean laws, these, these very complex series of regulations for worshipers to follow in order to be ceremonially clean and acceptable for the presence of God in worship. People could not draw near to God if they ate certain unclean foods, if they had touched dead things, if they had a disease or touched someone who did, and so on. You can see this in Leviticus 11 or chapters 15 or 20 as well. This ceremonial law, what it was, was a teaching method by which, the holy, by which holy God showed that sinful people cannot go into his presence without cleansing. That's what the clean laws were there for, to show that people must be cleansed before we go into uh, the presence of God. Despite Jesus explaining that with his arrival, the time for these laws had passed, God had to send Peter a vision to show him why the ceremonial law was finished. And so in Acts chapter 10, Peter sees this great sheet full of animals that were forbidden for eating in the Old Testament. And Peter, three times, he heard a voice say to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then Peter would say, no, Lord, you know that I haven't eaten anything unclean. And then it came again, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then this, in this vision, he heard, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So immediately at this moment, when Peter is having this vision on a rooftop, this Gentile named Cornelius literally knocks on the door of the house below Peter and asks for Peter by name. Peter was told in the same vision that someone would come asking for you. And so Peter meets this Gentile, Cornelius. He goes with Cornelius and the men who are with Cornelius. Cornelius receives Christ and is born again. Peter is a Jew. Cornelius is not. And Peter realizes that God, this is a quote out of Acts chapter 10, God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation who fear him. God does not show favoritism but accepts men and women from every nation who fear him. Afterwards, here Peter eats with the Gentiles despite the criticism that starts coming at him. Even later, he argues that the Gentiles have been, quote, purified by faith. That's Peter's own words. Before this instance that we're reading about in Galatians, Peter says the Gentiles, God has declared the Gentiles are made pure, made clean by faith. And then Peter began eating with these Gentiles because God had shown him that no one is, quote, unclean if they are in Christ. So when Peter withdraws then from the Gentiles, he's guilty of hypocrisy. Peter hadn't changed in his convictions. He knew the food and the dress laws were only Jewish customs, and he didn't keep to all of them anyways. But when it came to Gentiles, he had simply stopped acting in accordance with those convictions, and this hypocrisy was infectious. Even Barnabas, a mission partner of the uncircumcised Gentile Titus, was led astray. What caused this hypocrisy? He was afraid. Likely, Peter was afraid of criticism from those who belonged to the circumcision group, which is Paul's way of describing these people as preaching salvation through Christ plus something. End quote. So Peter is the very first person to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Gentiles start coming to believe in Jesus Christ. The church is unified. This Jerusalem council in, in uh, Galatians 2, 1 through 10, I think it's in verse, uh, verse 9, they, uh, 
Peter, James, and John gave Peter the right hand of fellowship for he and Barnabas to go to the Gentiles, and they would stay and continue to preach and proclaim the risen Jesus to the Jews here. And now Paul hears that Peter is actually drawing back from these Gentiles and separating himself from them. So Paul recognized that Peter's hypocrisy implied that non-Jews are second-class citizens in God's based on their race and based on their adherence to Jewish law, how would they then become first-class folks? The only way that they could become first-class folks would be to be circumcised and therefore become religious Jews in order to be first-class. It denied justification by faith alone. That's what Peter's actions, his conduct, was, was denying justification by faith alone. And like I said earlier, what's, coming, what's crazy about all this is that Peter was the very first one to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And he was a hypocrite as such. And Paul called him so. He knew the gospel and he believed the gospel, but his conduct wasn't straight with the gospel. He denied justification by faith. So within, our, within the church, we, I think we, we, we can tend to, when, we, when, our, when our own hearts swell with pride, um, and when we begin to subtly, maybe not consciously, it might not be a confession that we would make, but we kind of subtly begin to believe that our conduct justifies us before God, one of the natural outflows is judgmental. We become judgmental. We become critical. We become harsh with the people around us. We start to look at their conduct, measure their poor conduct, measured against our strength of conduct, and then we start to kind of judge them. And so it might not be around like, like, like it was for um, Paul and Peter here where he's drawing back from the Gentiles and eating with them, but maybe it's people that just don't take their faith as seriously as you do. Maybe it's people who hold to a different doctrinal, secondary or, or thir- tertiary um, doctrinal conviction that you do. Maybe it's people that, that, that aren't committed to uh, sharing the gospel. Maybe it's people that uh, aren't committed to gathering with the local church or gathering with a community group. We, we begin to subtly kind of believe that we're here and other people are here. And we can begin to almost separate ourselves seeing others that maybe don't take their faith as seriously as we think we do as second-class citizens. And I think it's a word of warning for us that our own judgmental, where, where if you are a critical person, critical about the people around you, your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Where I am judgmental towards you or towards the people around me, my conduct, my, my way of living and believing is actually not in step with the truth of the gospel, which says that Jesus, by grace, saved me, that I did nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it, nothing at all to warrant it. And when I move into this place of thinking that I am better than other people because of my performance and begin to look down my nose at other people, stop, Lida, and repent. And recognize that Jesus Christ has given himself to me at great cost and that I deserve nothing. Actually, what I deserve is hell. That's what I deserve. And yet, I have life and peace because of Jesus Christ. And so where somebody... Maybe their conduct isn't also in step with the truth of the gospel. My aim then is not to separate myself and to draw away and to say, get yourself right and then you can come into my presence. But because of the gospel, it should compel me to actually move towards them and to say, brother or sister, I do have concerns. I love you. This isn't about my performance, thinking that I'm better than you. But I want to say, like, have you seen this area of your life? Have you seen this blind spot? The way that you're glancing at your wife, the way that you're talking to your kids. That's me this morning. 
y'all. My wife is one of those people on the, the photo up there, and I'm like, I'm pastor dad this weekend, and like getting ready for this morning, and feeling a bit frustrated about 9.40 a.m. with my kids. Some of you probably witnessed it. I need to repent And I have been doing that this morning where my conduct, my frustration is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so the risen Christ calls me to walk towards him in faith and to say, you know what? Like, I'm sorry to my kids and to to offer those apologies to my children because I recognize how patient Jesus Christ has been with me when I'm a little kid messing up his house, messing up his day, like putting him on the cross. Here's my second point. We're going to get going here. Peter's conduct was influential. It wasn't in step with the gospel. Peter's conduct was influential, and it denied the gospel. And ours can too, out of verses 13 and 14. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Not only was he a hypocrite, but he led the rest of these Jews with him into hypocrisy after him. So even Barnabas is led into hypocrisy, Paul's own co-laborer throughout his ministry. Wherever our conduct is not in line with the truth of the gospel, we are living as hypocrites. And some hypocrisy we see, and some of our hypocrisy, maybe much of it, we don't see. We're not very self-aware folks. And that's where I need brothers and sisters like you, and you need brothers and sisters like me and others to, to enter in with you and to gently say, I, I see what God has given me. And as such, I want you to begin living out of that as well. I want you to begin living out of what he has done for you and to walk in repentance. If Jesus forgives people's debts to him, then when we we refuse to release others from their debts to us, we are hypocrites. We harden our hearts against them and say, you'll pay in order to come into my presence. If that's the case, our conduct isn't in step with the truth of the good news of Jesus. So Paul names Peter's hypocrisy in the last part of verse 14. He says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to actually live like Jews? Peter, you know you're released from the ceremonial law. Why do you force Gentiles to live according to it as if they're Jews? They're not. And then Paul answers his own rhetorical question in verses 15 and 16. We're going to go down, and this is just going to be to whet your appetite a bit for uh, next week. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You like how he just throws that little dig in there? Yet we know that a person is not justified or made righteous by works of the law by doing things, but actually made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's by faith alone. Why do we keep hammering justification by faith and not by works? Because we default to justification by our works. We look at the things that we're doing to measure our acceptability before a holy God. And justification says that we are not made right with God based on our 
way of life based on our lifestyle. Justification is an instantaneous legal declaration that is once for all complete. When you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and you you confess that he's Lord and you believe in your heart that the Father raised him from the dead, you are justified. And then begins a process called sanctification, which is the ongoing up and down, already not yet process of being made more and more like him over the course of our lives. See, we confuse our justification with our sanctification, and that's a major issue for all of us. We confuse it. Listen to this quote from Jason Dollar, and then I'll give us some practical implications, and we'll be out of here. Within the realm of justification, he says, that grace is given exclusively apart from a sinner's law-keeping or good works. God alone justifies by grace. Grace means unmerited favor. There are no conditions we can meet to earn his favor. The tax collectors and prostitutes can come. The drug abusers and child abusers can come. The murderers and manipulators can come to him. Justifying grace is granted to any person who places their trust in Jesus regardless of their spiritual or moral condition. But within the realm of sanctification, law-keeping plays a crucial role for the believer. His or her good works, which occur when he actively obeys the law, are important. They do not save him or her. He or she is already saved. But they are the fruit of his salvation, and they serve to confirm it. The Apostle John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him, Jesus, if we keep his commandments. So the biblical gospel teaches this. Do not mix good works with grace in the realm of justification, being made righteous with God. And number two, do not exclude the glorious law of God as a tool of your sanctification. The Ten Commandments are a tool for us. They're guardrails for us to pursue holiness. They give us shape. They give us a a lane. They give us texture for knowing what it looks like to please God through our obedience. But we don't obey God so that he will love us. I'm saying it like a broken record, you guys. We, We obey because he has set his love upon us. Crucial distinction. And it's what differentiates gospel Christians from works-based religions. It's an absolute differentiation. We are not made righteous through our works. Now, there are some practical implications. I'm going to give you six of them quick. Here's an implication, and these implications are coming right out of this text that I've read this morning, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through uh, 14. Living our lives with gospel implications in view, it requires courage of us. It requires us to be a courageous people. There will be times when we must oppose our friends because they're not living in step with the truth of the gospel. I'm going to say it on, on the negative end too. We are going, it's going to require us to have courage as our loved ones come to us and point out to us what we don't want to admit to or see, and yet we know in our heart of hearts it's true. It's going to require courage to see it and to face it, and there is absolutely a right time to fight. Whether you're the one coming to be corrected or you're the one coming doing the correcting or the church is standing as a prophetic voice against the wave of culture right now, which was blowing hard in our day and time. It is going to require courage for the church to stand fast on the gospel and not to be swayed by the winds of cultural change. 
Second implication, living out gospel implications, it requires good thinking. Now, some of you, when I say it requires good thinking, you're like, I'm out. Okay, like, we love you. God has given you a mind. He's given you intellect. Lean in with the degree that you are able. But some of you, like, he has uniquely wired you to use your mind and to think through nuance and to think with complexity like Paul does here, seeing that Peter's conduct is out of step with the gospel. We need you. I want, if you feel energized by a call to good, solid thinking, Amen. Lean in there. Be a student and a learner. It's easy to see this table fellowship here in Galatians chapter 2 is irrelevant for us today. We don't fight over things like these, but we need you to help us see the gospel implications for our day. So we need good, clear-eyed thinkers. We need you. Here's the third implication. Fear is a common driver of our hypocrisy. Fear is a common driver of our hypocrisy. We know what we want to do, but we give in to fear. Even Paul may have questioned whether or not he should address Peter publicly here. Yet Peter's actions were very public actions, and they were leading people astray publicly. And so this rebuke needed to be a public rebuke because of the others who were following, and they needed correction as well. Paul needed to make a statement here, and he did, and it was right. A lot of commentators are kind of like hammering on Paul for being out of line here with the apostle Peter, but he was absolutely in line with calling Peter out on his hypocrisy. Fear is a common driver of our hypocrisy, and Paul named it. For fear of the circumcision party, he drew back from the Gentiles. Here's my fourth practical implication. Our conduct is influential. We may feel like no one is watching. Not true. If they know that you are a believer, they are watching you. If you have little children, you know that they watch you, and not only do they watch you, they listen to you. Oftentimes, Meredith and I are having conversations in the house. We think we're like the only ones and they're doing their things, but pretty soon they'll like perk up after we've gone silent, like, hey, how did that resolve? Or, hey, what, what are you guys going to do about that? Or, hey, like, I didn't catch that point. And we're like, what are you doing? Like, you're doing three things just now, and one of them we thought was not listening. Our conduct is always influential. People are watching you no matter what you think. <clears throat> Here's a fifth implication. False doctrines whether it's cults out there, works-based religions out there, or even our pet doctrines, those secondary or third or fourth doctrines that we kind of elevate and they're the, bang, they're the drum that we repeatedly bang. We're a, a single-issue voter. Those doctrines, when they're elevated above the good news of Jesus, can take whole churches and communities off mission. And so as the people of God, we need to make sure that we are standing fast, unified around the gospel of grace, and that grace shapes how the grace that we have received shapes the grace that we give and live with others in. Does that make sense? When we start elevating secondary and third things above the gospel of grace, it can take us off mission. Paul says to Titus, this uncircumcised Gentile that is his traveling companion here, he writes a a letter. um, It's just Titus in the New Testament. Titus became a pastor, and it's a letter to him. Paul says this to him, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and they're worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That's Paul's way of saying to Titus, stay on mission. Stay on point. 
Here's my sixth implication, and it is simple. If Peter could forget the gospel, so can you and I. Fourteen years after Jesus' resurrection, and Peter draws back from these Gentiles, after he's received this vision, gone with this guy named Cornelius, seen their family, uh, baptized and come to be believers, filled with the Holy Spirit. He starts taking shots from the other Jews. You can't let these Gentiles in. You can't uh, commiserate with these Gentiles. And they actually, Peter says, no, 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 like the Holy Spirit came to them. And then they affirmed that, and they, they ble- the other Jews blessed that, and the Gentiles are now included in the family of God. And then 15 years or so after that, Peter forgets it, and for fear, he doesn't actually forget it. He just draws back. He lets his fear control him. So if he forgets to live with the gospel conduct, so can you and I. The gospel has implications for our conduct, and Jesus, who is the good news, has authority over our conduct. I have a question. Will you throw up that last slide? Where is the Holy Spirit specifically asking you to align your conduct with the truth of the gospel? Where is the Holy Spirit specifically asking you, the person in your seat, to align your conduct with the truth of the gospel? How are you relating to the people around you right now? How are you fearing? How are you treating husbands and wives? How are you treating children? How are you treating parents? How are you relating to the people around you? Where is the Holy Spirit specifically asking you to align your conduct with the truth of the gospel? Ask him. He's probably already naming it for you. Now, what does it look like for you to ask him for guidance and for direction and to pursue him in obedience, doing what he tells you to do? You have that sense within you, I need to do this, and you know it's right, you know it's honorable, you know it's holy in the sight of God. Do that. Follow him and obey. Give him gratitude and see uh, redemption come in that area of your life. It may first come with consequence as you own up to some stuff that you don't want to own up with right about now. Count the cost. Follow the Lord. He has not failed us yet, and he will not. Father, speak to your people this morning. Speak through your people this morning. Help us to be a people of repentance, a people of faith, people who recognize that as we believe for the first time that Jesus is Lord and that you raised him from the dead and that that is real, that we would understand that 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 is forever, that we are forever adopted, forever justified people, forever saved. And then as we continue a lifestyle of repentance, that we would not confuse that and say, if I don't repent, I'm out, but rather understand a, a continual cycle of saying that we're sorry and owning our guilt and trusting you to cover it, that that lifestyle is our way on as we are sanctified and made more and more like Jesus Christ. And eventually, on that day when we meet you face to face, it'll all be complete and we'll be delivered finally from the power of our sin But when we meet you face to face, we will also, we have this hope in front of us, that we will be delivered from the presence of sin. And I long for that. Strengthen your people, speak to your people, draw us to repentance, and keep us in your love, believing you, taking you at your word. In Jesus' name, amen.